you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Happy 4th to you all. I might get used to this no light thing. It's kind of nice not, you know, having it blaring there. Can see you better. <laughs> We're sitting at the feet of Jesus again today for another of his parables. Uh, these parables are about how it's going to be when he comes back to this place. When Maisie, our fourth child, our fourth child, now almost 21, uh, started driving, Lori found this app <clears throat> called Life360. And it, it was, it's basically a spy app, you know, and it let, it let us track where, where Maisie was, you know, by her phone. And so we, we wanted that because she started driving on her own, you know, and we, you know, we, so we set up places in Life 360, and it told us when she got there and when she left. So we knew when she was on the road. We even knew how fast she was driving. So, you know, very helpful spy app for parents. Life 360, it's free. You can, you can pay for things and get better, you know, driving reports. But we just did the free version. So I'm not really spying on Maisie. She's almost 21 now. So now I'm using it for a different reason because Lori and I um, are now still on Life360, and we can tell where each other are. So we can spy on each other. Uh, but, but what, uh, what I, I, I began using this for is about once a week, uh, and, and I am c- trying to cook dinner for our family, just, just once a week. And uh, so I set up a, pl- a place in Life360 that's about a mile away from our home. It's like the intersection down the street. And so I did that so I know when Lori gets to that place when she's on her way home from work because when she walks in the door, I want to have it ready. You know, I want the bread just coming out of the oven. I want the drinks poured and dishes done. That's kind of a bonus. Do you know what I'm talking about? So when she walks in the door, we're ready to eat dinner. And so the phone, like, tells me. You know, it, it goes off, little, little sound when she gets to that place. And um, now our dog Watson, when he hears that sound, he gets all excited because he knows mom's coming home, you know, in, in a few minutes, which is one of his, his favorite things in the world to have happen. Well, wouldn't it be really cool to have an, an app tell us when Jesus left his father's side? To come home, you know, bringing our reward with him and and all of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, our phones would go off and they'd tell us, Jesus is on the way. You know, and then in a a blink of an eye, we'd we'd meet him in the air and and, uh, we'd go up there and we'd escort him back in this parousia parade, this incredible parade. Um, that we're going to bring him back, that will usher in the kingdom of God. And then he will open the doors to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, we'll go in there and we'll sit down and we will have the best party that we've ever had with him, celebrating the victory of the Lamb over Satan and sin and death. It's coming. 
Now, the big question that everybody wants to know is, is not if Jesus is coming back, but when he's coming back. And, and so these ready-or-not parables that we've got today, they, they reminded, again, reminded me, we're not going to get an answer to the when question. And we, we aren't going to ever have an app on our phone that gives us a notification that says, Jesus just got up from his father's right hand. But what we do get are warnings, encouragements in the scriptures uh, to be ready and to stay ready. So I've got three questions for you today as we sit at Jesus' feet for these ready or not parables. My prayer is that they will help us be ready to see him uh, when we come face to face. So we're going to start in Matthew uh, chapter 24 and verse 36, and we'll work our way through 25 uh, verse Verse 13, but the first question is going to come out of verses 36 to 44, and that is, where is my focus? So let me read those. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah enter, entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this good day that you've given us to come here together, uh, to be together, to confess who you are and to worship you and to hear from you. We thank you for this word that Jesus has given us to tell us about what it's going to be like when he comes back. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's coming. We don't know when. So we've got good words this morning from him to help us be ready. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations in my heart would be pleasing and in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's that reminder in verse 36. No answer to the when question. Just warnings, just encouragements to be ready. And Jesus gives us three levels of warnings or encouragements using some stories from the past and situations in their present. So he starts comparing um, the days of Noah uh, back in the Old Testament to the days before the coming of the Son of Man. And he's saying that, you know, life is going to be going on like normal. It's going to be life as usual. People back in Noah's day, they were eating and drinking, they were being married, you know, all, all up until the day when uh, Noah and his family got on the ark, and then the flood came, and it was too late. It was too late to do anything about it. So it was life as usual until it wasn't. And then in verses 40 to 42, Jesus zooms in a little bit more on life, and he speaks about a kind of a normal day, you know, two Two people working in the field, two men working in the field, one's taken, the other left. Two women grinding grain, one taken, the other left. Just a, a normal work day until it wasn't. 
But he's not done yet. He, he zooms in a little more down to the hour. He says, if, if the master of house knew when the thief was going to come and break in, he would have stayed awake and he would have protected his house, would have kept it from, from happening. But that's not how thieves work. Uh, they come at night when people are asleep. They use the element of surprise to their advantage. And he says, so, so will it be. It'll be the same when Jesus comes back. We don't know the hour that he's coming. So we need to be living in a state of readiness. So we need to answer this question. Where is my focus? Where's my focus? And really there's only two answers to that question. There's either an earthly focus or there's an eternal focus. Two, two possibilities. Now what's an earthly focus? An earthly focus is, is all going to be a, a life about living the good life that we get to live here. You know, it's all about tasting the world's foods and experiencing the world's adventures and, and living the world's dream and seeing the world's sights. The purpose that you're here really is all about just being here. And it doesn't really call your attention to anything eternal, anything that God is doing, anything that God wants, um, any, any place that he is leading. So, so your, your life is just kind of focused on getting things done so you can put your feet up. You know, maybe doing a little good to help out a little bit because you don't want to be this, you know, awful person. But it's about the budget. It's about the menu. It's about the planning, the party, the show. You know, what, what we're going to do, the job, the grade. It's about here. Hour by hour, the clock is ticking by and our appetites for the things of this world, they just get, they get all the attention and the things that are unknown to us, the things that are, you know, seen like off in the distant future, the things that are unseen, they just kind of get neglected, not thought about. That's an earthly focus. So what's an eternal focus look like? Well, having a focus on what is unseen and eternal, it, it's, it's something that will help us live in a state of readiness. Listen to Colossians 3, uh, 1 to 4. It says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ... So since you're a believer, since you're a follower of Jesus, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Have you ever selected a life verse. Now, sometimes those are given to us when we're small. I got one when I was 13 years old from my mom in a plaque at home. It says, you can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Got it in a little frame, still in my bathroom. See it every morning. Helps me do things that I don't think I can do. Have you ever like been reading God's word and just you read something and it's like th this verse speaks about you and about him and about what he wants you to do with your life. Something you can come back to again and again to help you stay focused on eternal things. You, do you know what I'm talking about? It, it doesn't have to be just one verse, okay? You can add to life verses over your whole life. You can make a stack of them. That's great. I think that's, re that's really good. But it's a verse that says, this is what my life is about. This is what God wants me to do. This is my focus. Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13 says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation 
and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Now, when I read that many years ago, the Lord spoke to me and he showed me this is a roadmap for your life. And the first two parts happened. He restored to me the joy of my salvation. And then he granted me a willing spirit after a lot of wrestling. And then he showed me, if you teach transgressors my ways, I promise sinners will turn back to me if, if you do this. That's been my life verse. It's been a focus for me to come back, to know what he wants me to do in my life. When you've got, when your life has an eternal focus, okay, you will find that no matter what you're doing, whether you're eating and drinking, whether you're being uh, married or being given in marriage, whether you are working, playing, learning, resting, whatever it is, you will find if you have an eternal focus, a life verse, a purpose for being here that's not about here, you'll find that your thoughts of Jesus are not very far away. Now, life is not lived out all at once. It is lived out day by day. And so having a life verse, fantastic, great way to focus your life. But there's no better way to keep your minds on things above and not on earthly things than to weave the word of God into your daily life. Okay, every day. It's, it's an old idea. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. God said to his people, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home, when you are on the road, when you are going to bed, and when you are getting up. So love the Lord your God with all yourself. Great life verse. A great life focus for you. But then you can have this great daily habit of taking God's word and weaving it in to your daily life. So imagine you're out in the field working or you're working wherever you're working. And, you know, it's a normal work day, except what's going through your mind is this. I am coming soon and I am bringing my reward with me. Jesus' words from Revelation 22, verse 12. And they just keep coming back. You just keep thinking them about them. Or maybe it's something like Proverbs 3, you know, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all of your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. Or maybe it's something like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I mean, imagine if that is floating around in your head all day long while you are at work. And Jesus shows up. You're ready. You're ready. Filling your heart up with what is eternal will have an impact on your focus, on what your mind is dwelling on, and then what you do, your actions. You know, there's only two things in this world that are eternal. The souls of men and the word of God. Imagine taking that eternal word and sticking it in here, dwelling on it all day long. It's a good habit to be in. So our lives are lived out day by day. And our days are lived out hour by hour. Right? And that's where Jesus went. And we're told a couple of places in the Bible to always be in prayer. You know, and I think we might read that and go, yeah, seriously, how do we do that? You know, 
Always, I mean, constantly being in this conversation with God. But, you know, God's word isn't just like, it's, it's not like a metaphor there. I mean, it's like, this is a command. This is something we should pursue in our life, to always be talking to God, have a constant conversation with him. And there was a, there was a guy named Brother Lawrence. He's a 17th century monk, and he worked hard at practicing the presence of God. And so he wrote some letters that, are, that have been kind of saved, and you can read them. And they're all about his, his life trying to be uh, aware that God's right there with him. So this is some things he wrote. He says, we cannot avoid the dangers and the reefs of which this life is full without the real and constant help of God. Let us ask him for it without ceasing. But how can we ask him without being with him? And how can we be with him without often thinking of him? And how often and, and how can we often think of him without forming a holy habit of doing so? He also said, it's a little, <clears throat> it's a little lifting up of the heart that suffices. A little remembrance of God. An interior act of adoration. Even though, uh, even though we're on the march, these prayers that we make, they may be short. Nevertheless, they are very pleasing to God. Let us then think of God as much as possible, that we will gradually become accustomed to this little but holy exercise. No one will notice it, and nothing is easier than to repeat it often during the day, these little acts of interior adoration. I remember one time talking about this habit of practicing the presence of God in a small group many years ago. And um, I was talking about Brother Lawrence, and one of the members thought, man, that is just stupid. <laughs> Why in the world would you ever want to do that? It just sounds so burdensome. How could you get anything done? And I thought, you know, it, it isn't an easy thing to do, to be intentional about. But why wouldn't we want to do it? I mean, if we know the living God, and, and we know he is omnipresent, he is everywhere all at the same time, and so that means he is with us, why wouldn't we want to remember that? And why wouldn't we want to be talking to him all day long, no matter what we are doing? I mean, he is always near. Even when we turn away and we feel like we've walked away, we turn back around and find out he's right behind us. He's right there waiting for us. It's his common grace. It's his love for us. And if we would do it, if we would make this a holy habit, well, it will help us stay ready. So where is your focus? Where is your focus? When you are immersed in the purpose of God in your life and his word every day and his presence every hour, it will help you live in a state of readiness. You know, he's coming. No ifs, no buts. He's, he's coming. We just don't know when. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. It could be today. We want to be ready. Focus on things above. Another question. How will he find me? How will he find me? Verses 45 to 51. <clears throat> Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So here Jesus is speaking about two servants, it sounds like. Um, one is called faithful and wise. One is called wicked. So the faithful and wise servant, he's been given something to do by his master, and he is spending his time doing that work, doing the work that his master told him to do while he was gone. When his master comes back, he says he is blessed, but, and the master gives him more to do, gives him more responsibility. He, he elevates him. The other guy, um, he's also been given work to do by the master, but he puts it off. You know, he's thinking, my master won't be back for a while. I got some time to go do my own thing, and then I can come get his work done before he shows up. The trouble is, the master comes back early, and the wicked servant gets treated like a wicked, wicked servant should. So the difference between the two, one is faithful to the master, and the other one is not. One is about his master's business. One is about his own business. One is rewarded. The other is rejected. So while you are immersing yourself in the purpose of God, in the word of God, in the pre- in practicing the presence of God, there is serving to do. There's serving to do. Jesus said, Matthew 20, verse 28, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's our leader. He came to serve. And so that verse there gives, gives us a pattern for our life, how we're supposed to live it as his followers. So this servant in this parable, he's given the task of feeding the household at the proper time. And so to feed, to feed the household, I know from a tiny bit of experience, like once a week now, um, but you got to plan the meal, right? You got to prepare the meal. You got to serve the meal. You got to eat the meal. And then you got to clean up from the meal. And then rinse, repeat. It happens a lot. You know, a lot. So imagine if you were given that job in in the kingdom of God. And it it all kind of happens behind the scene, except for the moment the the vultures descend and then they go. You know what I'm talking about? It could be a little monotonous. And it, it, it could get kind of boring. It might seem like, you know, this isn't very important work. You know, what am I really doing for the kingdom of God? But until you get a word from the master that he wants you to do something else, this is what he's called you to do. And when he comes back, you want to be found faithful in doing what he's given you to do, serving him by serving others. What are the enemies of faithfulness? Well, I, I think there's probably many, but I think self is, is a big one. You know, we, we would just rather do what we want to do than what God has given us to do. Um, maybe it's what we're, God has given us to do is, is, is a behind-the-scenes task, and nobody is seeing it. Nobody's saying way to go. Maybe, maybe it's not a fun task. Uh, may, maybe it's hard. Maybe it's all of those things. But the nut of it is our self would rather be served than serve. And you can kind of test that theory on yourself by thinking, when was the last time I got treated like a servant and how did I react? And you get a kind of an idea where your heart is when it comes to 
to servanthood. So self is an enemy to faithfulness. Weariness is an enemy to faithfulness. Faithfulness will get you tired. Faithfulness is hard. We, we do get tired. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits. And we need to rest. I mean, God rested one day a week. You know, he set up the Sabbath because he knew we needed to rest. How often do we do that? You know, this is not a, not just an ordinary day for believers. Sunday is special for us. We set it aside to worship God. But, you know, on the way up, people were cutting their grass. This morning they were out riding their bike. You know, it's just a normal day. Looking forward to the grill and fireworks. They're missing fireworks right here. I don't know. We ought to be grateful that God has given us faith. That this isn't just a normal day for us. But we get tired. God knew we would get tired. He built in the Sabbath to our pattern for living. So weariness is is an enemy to faithfulness. And the enemy is an enemy to faithfulness. He loves to speak to the self in us and say, nobody sees what you're doing. You're not making any difference. Look over here. Greener pastures. Enemy will do that to you all day long. Listen, to be found faithful is harder than it sounds. How can we be there when Jesus shows up? Well, I like Nehemiah's way. You know, Nehemiah, he is, God chronicled um, in Nehemiah the calling of one of his servants to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem when he was bringing his people back from exile. And, and in there, Nehemiah gets a burden for the city, and then he goes to his king and he gets permission to go back and build the walls. And, you know, by God's grace, He gets all of that from this foreign pagan king. And when those walls are almost done, he stirs up, Satan stirs up Israel's enemies, and they try to stop it from being completed because they know that it's still vulnerable. Listen to Nehemiah 6, 1 to 4. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to to meet them at one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. And so I replied by sending him this message. I am engaged in a great work, so I cannot come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. So even though he gave him that strong reply, it didn't stop his enemies from trying to distract Nehemiah from the work. I mean, they tried intimidation. They tried to scare him. They tried to stir up the people against him, all of those things. But he knew he was doing something God wanted him to do, and he remained faithful to it. He just kept saying that same reply, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come. I cannot come down. 
I cannot stop. I just love that. Satan will always try to distract us from what we're supposed to do in the kingdom of God. He can't have us, but he can try to distract us. He can try to keep us from doing things. So he'll tempt us with worldly pursuits. He'll do all kinds of things to get us to stop. We'll see people living these lives out there, you know. Man, it'd be nice to have a Sunday just to go ride my bike. I could have got the grass cut this morning and then just kicked back the rest of the day. He'll tempt you. He said, this, this following Christ thing, <laughs> I don't know about these benefits. Where's the reward? Look at how all these people are living. They got, they got easy street. That stuff starts floating through your mind. Nehemiah's response can help us be faithful. I am doing a great work. Now listen, if you know that God has called you to something, then it's a great work because he's called you to it, no matter what it is. Feeding the household, building the walls around Jerusalem, serving in the nursery, cleaning the church, praying, giving, taking care of somebody. Whatever the work is, if God has given you that work and you know what you're calling, it is a great work. So when faithfulness gets hard, you want to stop and you want to say to yourself, I am doing a great work and I cannot stop. I can't leave it undone. I can't be distracted from this work. Even though there might be something good there, it's not the great work that God has me doing. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. It's a surrendering yourself to God's will. It's a trusting yourself to God's work. And it's trusting God's spirit to bear a fruit that's mixed into that love, joy, peace, patience. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so we're trusting him to bear that fruit. And that, that's like the thing that he's, he's the one that keeps you going. He's the one that gives you the strength to say no to those other things that come up. He's the one that gives you the strength that, that go, to go one more hour to be faithful one more hour and then that hour turns into a day and then that day turns into a life. The Holy Spirit bears that fruit in us. He will do it. He will do it. So when it's hard to keep going, we say, I'm doing a great work and I cannot stop. And we trust him to keep us going. So let's move that final, ready or not, parable in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. And it's going to bring up a question. Will he know me? Will he know me? Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to, to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I 
do not know you. Watch therefore. Watch therefore, for you neither know, neither the day, no, neither the day or the hour. So Jesus uses the occasion of a wedding ceremony to illustrate what the kingdom of God will be like when he returns. So most all of us know what our weddings are all about, right? Who's the focus at our weddings? The bride. You know, it's uh, it's a here comes the bride moment. She's the one in hiding, you know, um, before the ceremony. Um, she's the one that everyone stands for when she walks in and processes down the aisle. You know, all eyes are on her. The focus is on the bride. Well, at the Jewish wedding, it, it's, the, it's the opposite of that. The groom gets all the attention. It's all about him uh, processing in, uh, making a grand entrance. And so in verse 1, Jesus says, There's ten virgins took lamps, and they went out to meet the bridegroom. So a, a traditional Jewish wedding had three big events. The first was the engagement. Okay, so the couple decides to get married. Then comes the betrothal period, which is like a small ceremony that's private, family, and friends. Um, and then the, the groom goes back to his house and begins to prepare to bring his bride to his home. And that could have lasted up to a year. The community saw that couple as being married, but they weren't living together yet. And then the third event was the actual wedding ceremony. Okay, and that's where we're at in this parable. So these ten virgins are the bridesmaids of this wedding. And it's their job to go out into the courtyard of the bride to light the way for the groom as he comes to get his bride to take her back through town in a big wedding procession with their lamps. Now, it happened at night, typically, because that's when everybody was home and this was a huge community event, so that's when most people could enjoy and celebrate what was going on in the life of this couple. So in verses 2 to 4, there is some important information in there about the ten bridesmaids. So it's their job to light the way for the groom. Okay, and uh, some of them were ready to do that, and some were not, depending on if they had oil with them for their lamps. So the oil is like the key element of this parable. It's the difference between being called wise and foolish. The difference between being prepared and unprepared. And at this wedding, the groom uh, was delayed in coming. He didn't come when, when it was expected, and so all these bridesmaids fell asleep. But then there was the, the midnight cry, hey, the groom is coming, get up. It's time to do this parade. And some of them, they woke up and they were ready to go on that parade through the streets. Some of them were in a panic because they couldn't light, light their lamps. And so the end result of not being prepared, not having that oil, was that these bridesmaids were um, left on the outside looking in. The consequences of not having that oil, they heard the words from the groom, you're too late you're too late. I don't know you. Now, this is a parable for people who are living their lives in church. Okay? The bridesmaids represent us. And at the beginning of this, they all look the same, you know, on the outside. You know, they all got an invitation to come to receive the groom and escort him through the town. They all got that invitation. They all got dressed up for the wedding. They all got excited to see the, the bridegroom. They all fell asleep when he was delayed. So up to that point, they, they all looked the same. But when he does show up, something, some didn't have that oil for their lamp. Some didn't have what they needed for the, on the inside of their lamp. 
that made the difference. So on the outside, they all looked the same. But on the inside, that's where the difference was. And the groom says those words, I don't know you. And so the question has to be for us, if we're going to be ready to see Jesus face to face, will he know me? Will Jesus know me when he shows up here? How can we be sure? Well, you know, every relationship has a beginning. Every relationship. And it's the same with God. Your relationship with God has a beginning. And I love this picture that Jesus gives us. It's in Revelation 3.20. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Now that's spoken to a church that in Laodicea that's lukewarm, thinking they have all that they need. Hate to bring that up on July 4th. A lot of comparisons between Laodicea and America. But if we just look at what Jesus says there, it's, it's, a, it's an invitation to a relationship. You know, the door that he knocks on is the door to your life. You know, And if you're here and you're hearing me, and you're not sure how you would answer this question, does he know me? He's knocking right now. And he's hoping that you'll open your life up to him. Look what happens. Look what he says happens. It doesn't say he's going to come in and spank you, <laughs> punish you. It doesn't say that, does it? It says he's going to come in and he's going to sit down at your table and you're going to share a meal together as friends. That is so beautiful. In Eastern culture, to share a meal with each other is about sharing your life. It is one of the most intimate things that you can do. So Jesus is saying that we will share our lives together. We will know each other. I will know you. You will know me. That's amazing. So what keeps us from opening the door to that relationship? Well, pride does. It's one thing. You know, we, we think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a decent person. You know, I'm, I do some good things. I'm, I'm, I'm not bad. I'm good. I think when I see God, he's going to be fair with me. And that's, that's one way that our, our pride gets in the way of us opening the door. The, the, other, the other way that that works is that, you know, there's seats around your table at home. And as the owner of your table, you get to see, sit in the head seat. Right? But Jesus is the son of God. And so if you open the door to him and and he's going to come in, the only seat that would be appropriate for him to take is the head seat at the table. But our pride doesn't want to give up that seat. You know, that's that's my seat. I like that seat. I'm in charge. So our pride works in different ways to keep us from opening the door, to keep us from saying, Jesus, come in. Shame is another one. 
shame keeps us from opening the door to Jesus. You know, usually when we have people over for dinner, we clean the house. We put on clean clothes. We don't go to the laundry basket and get dirty clothes out that are wrinkled and stained by stuff. We dress up. We look good for the guests. Making our, what do we do? Make ourselves presentable, right? That's what's in us. Well, when it comes to Jesus, there's no way to make ourselves presentable. And to open our lives up to him, he's going to know who we are. He's going to know what we do. So shame says, I'm too bad to have Jesus in my life. I'm afraid of what might happen there. And so we keep hiding because we're ashamed of ourselves. Fear keeps us from opening the door. No fear. We're afraid of what's going to happen. We're afraid we're going to get punished. We're afraid of giving up control. We're afraid. Afraid. Afraid of all of that. Every relationship has a beginning. Everyone. Have you ever opened up the door to Jesus and let him come into your life, given him the head seat at the table? I promise you your good is not good enough. I promise you your bad is not bad enough. I promise you, your fear will dissolve when you meet perfect love. I promise you. Now, it costs. It costs you. Salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything. It costs you your pride. It costs you control. It doesn't. Amen? It will cost you, you. You put your life in Jesus' hands, but you get Jesus. He will know you. You will know him. You will know what it's like to be loved with a perfect love. You will know what it's like to be forgiven, to have your sins removed from you as far as the east is from the west. You will know what it's like to be accepted just like you are today. You will know what it's like to have a purpose that goes beyond this world. You will know true joy. You will know freedom that cannot be taken away. We'll know all of that. And you know what else? You'll be ready. You'll be ready to see him the day he comes back. 